Hello and welcome again to another edition of Christian Deep Dive. This is part four of a series called The Sovereign Spirit, where we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about uh, some of the extremes between the cessationist and the continuist. And it's basically those who say that uh, the Holy Spirit can do very little in this day and age, that everything stopped with the age of the apostles and against the people that say, well, anything can happen and anything goes kind of thing. So two extremes, and we're searching the scriptures and through church history to see uh, where we can find some truths here. So that's where we're at. That's where we were. Part three, we were talking about testing and proving all things. And we're going to continue with more of that here with part four. And I want to start out by talking about a subject that's very controversial, and that is... Uh, basically the case of the misuse of the gift of speaking in tongues. So we're going to start out with that. In the Corinthian church, it would appear that the people were tending to misuse this or at least wanting to exercise it the whole time when they gathered together. So Paul warns them of the effect that this would have on any outsider coming in when he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if therefore the whole church come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that you are mad? So that's what he was dealing with. It seems like to me anyway, as I read it, the Corinthians wanted to spend the whole time in their church meetings and speaking in tongues that other and other people would not be able to understand it. And of course, I've been in many Pentecostal churches, a lot of really good ones, well-meaning ones, well-meaning people. Uh, and again, sometimes there is definitely a way, a way, way, way overemphasis on this. So if we look at it, what is the apostle really saying here? What's his advice? What's his teaching? And that is that anything, including this, must be controlled and that you cannot at one time, at the same time, abandon yourself or let yourself go. You've got to be con in control. We ended part three by talking about reason and understanding, and we're going to continue all that. And we also said how 1 Corinthians 14.32 said, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So what that means to me is you're not to let yourself go, because if you do, you'll expose yourself to other spirits. We talked about that last time, about we have the Holy Spirit, but we have a lot of evil spirits that you, won't, <clears throat> that you will not be able to test if you let yourself go. And still more, you wouldn't be able to control yourself. And you remember Paul ended that chapter that we were just quoting let all things be done decently and in order. And that's not possible if you abandon your thinking, your reason, reasoning, and your understanding. So it's interesting, though. In Christianity, so you can be gripped, and it's really the only thing, because the cults and everything else, you lose total control. If you follow Scripture, you can at one point be lifted, gripped and lifted up by the Holy Spirit, but still be in control. And so that's why I'm arguing we have to use our reason and understanding, which is very powers that God has given us. And I think it's exciting because it's the very central glory of the Christian salvation that it takes up the whole man. It takes up his mind. It takes up his heart. It takes up his will. So any teaching that tells you that you're only going to get a blessing if you stop thinking is contrary to the gospel itself. There have been, I've read about, and actually seen in some cases, psychological techniques such as putting out the lights or having a rhythmic 
repetition of phrases or music. Um, heck, it reminds me of the primitive races, how they used to slowly work up their cells into a, in a primal condition with the drum beats and things like that, so they would lose all power of understanding. And so we've got to watch out for that. <clears throat> and I can tell you from personal experience, I've been in churches where instead of God sovereignly pouring out his spirit and sovereignly deciding if someone was going to get a gift such as, let's say, tongues, all right, um, they tell you to come forward and just clear your mind and just start babbling out the first thing that comes to you. Well, when you do that, you're, and then a lot of these people are very well-meaning people, but I don't see any scriptural reference of that. <clears throat> All I see is opening up, abandoning yourself, which we've just talked about you shouldn't do, and losing your reasoning and understanding, which you shouldn't do, and you're not in control. And therefore, something is possible because you're not following things scripturally, then things are, are very dangerous at that point, and you're opening yourself up to anything. Another danger I want to talk about that I wasn't able to fit in <clears throat> with part one is the danger of putting the scriptures against the spirit or the spirit against the scripture. Um, and this is one of the most important tests that we should apply to anything that offers itself as a new manifestation of the Holy Spirit, especially in the manner of, of gifts. As I have studied church history, uh, it's been plain to me that as I read about certain revivals and histories, a lot of them start out very well and a lot of them end well. But a lot of them start out really well, but then they get a little wacky as certain people start to get a little wacky and crazy because they let themselves go and they start pushing the spirit against the word. And I'll give you an example of that. One of the real true big revivals was the Welsh revival of, of many, many years ago. And it was a very true revival. <clears throat> a lot of good, positive things happened. But then there were a few preachers that came out of it that got so caught up in what was going on that they thought they no longer had to prepare their sermons. They no longer had to find scriptures and expound on them. Instead, they would walk in to their <clears throat> services, not preparing anything, and just saying, well, the Holy Spirit's going to illuminate me. He's going to give me what I need to speak at this moment. And again, there's no scriptural basis for that. Uh, it went wrong for those two preachers. Again, they came out of a very strong and good revival. However, by doing this, uh, soon everything began to wax and wane. They soon lost their people coming to their churches. It died. Why? Because they were putting basically the Spirit, their expectations of the Holy Spirit, in effect taking the sovereignty of the Spirit away <coughs> by dictating that he was going to give them a word to speak. It's no different than claiming something, which we talked about, I think, back in part two, where it's wrong to just claim anything. If the Holy Spirit is sovereign, then we don't claim anything. We simply pray that he would do his work and that he would fill us with his Spirit, that he would give us all of the fruits of the Spirit, that we would walk in his way. And if there's any gift he wanted to give us, that's fine too, if it's, as long as it's of him. You take away the sovereignty, though, when you start claiming things. The moment you leave the authority of the scriptures, you get confusion and chaos. And that's what's happened all through church history. It's happening today. And some of the extreme, over-the-top, charismatic <coughs> churches that in a given five-year period, the only part of the Bible that they cover is maybe one or two books, and they stay right there and they overemphasize it. And that's all they teach. 
And so their people become spiritually illiterate. They don't know their Bibles and they're subject to every women wane of some of these TV preachers and that. And then shipwreck comes because things don't happen the way things are claimed and people, people fall down in their faith. This leads to be careful to being careful of any kind of fresh revelation as well. Anything that's considered uh, a fresh revelation that goes above and beyond scripture itself. And one of those things would be, of course, when um, I won't go into the whole thing, but the, when Seventh Day Adventism came into be, because a person, a man called Russell and a woman called Mrs. Eleanor White, claimed that the Holy Spirit had revealed to them during this movement the exact year when our Lord was going to come. And of course, it didn't happen, uh, but the movement still goes on. <clears throat> and just in my lifetime, I'm in my 60s now as I record this, there's been at least two different times <clears throat> where so-called prophets have said that God revealed to them uh, when, when the Lord was coming. One of them was a book called 88 Reasons That Jesus Would Return in 1988. And you read, you know, before 1988, if you read all the reasons, they seem pretty strong. Uh, but you know what? Nothing happened. And in the other case that I can't distinctly remember the exact date that was prophesied, uh, that didn't happen either. But again, both of these people said they had fresh revelation of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was going to come. And it did not happen. And a lot of people had their faith shipwrecked because they were counting on it. And again, what happens when a lot of these crazy things happen that are not proven, that are not tested, some of the very strong cessationists stand back and say, see, we told you, look at all this crazy stuff that's going on. And because of that, more and more they say, because these things are wrong, because these things are crazy, accept our teaching that the Holy Spirit can do very little, if anything, in this day and age today, that miracles can't happen, that healings can't happen, uh, all that kind of thing. And that's, that's the danger of this. You know, they just sit back and they say, see, we told you so. But what I'm trying to maintain is when we say we got to prove and test all things, that goes for the cessationist too. If something happens, prove and test it. For the continuous, if something happens, prove and test it. Are you looking to see what Jesus wants to do through the power of his Holy Spirit, which is meant to glorify him? That's the key. I can tell you now, that I think, you know, we talked about the bad side of the gifts of tongues and the wrong way of doing it. <clears throat> but I re I've read of several instances that uh, where I think it was totally legitimate in our day and age. I, there was a case up in the state of Washington where somebody came into a service and brought a guest and somebody started speaking in tongues in a uh, some kind of dialect of, a, of, an, of an African type that was kind of you know, not current. It was like an older dialect, but the person that was coming in as a guest was a scholar from Africa that knew this dialect, and he was an unbeliever, and he only went to church as a courtesy with the people he was staying in. But when he heard this being spoken, he understood it, and it was talking about glorifying Jesus Christ, that he was the only one, that he was the Savior. Uh, the person speaking in this tongue had no idea that what, what this dialect was, but it convinced this one person that Perhaps this was all real, that maybe Jesus was the real Messiah, and it led him to start studying up on the Lord. See, it's cases like that, where God is sovereign, where he can do what he wants, that I'm not going to sit here and say he can't do that, you know, because it goes against what my denomination teaches. Uh-uh, we can't do that. we got to be open to what the Lord wants to do. we got to prove it, and we got to test it. And something like that happening 
to this person that it's very possible that this person in this church never spoke in tongues again, but God sovereignly spoke, poured out his spirit on this person. And that's way, way, way different than saying everybody's got to come up and utter the first thing that comes to your mind and start and throw away your rhyme and reason and start babbling things. There's a huge difference in the two. As I read through the centuries about people did it right, when you find out men who had been baptized with the Spirit, such as Whitfield, Wesley, Moody, many others, they all expounded the scriptures and never stopped expounding the scripture. They studied them, they prepared their messages, and then they relied on the Spirit to give power to it and to apply it to their hearers. Getting back to watching out for the stuff that has nothing to do with scripture or, that, or that's just plain spectacular, um, <clears throat> give you a little piece of advice. Anything that is merely spectacular for no spiritual benefit, by that I mean, does nothing to do with glorifying Christ, nothing to do with, with furthering his kingdom, always beware of that. I'm going to give you an example of that. <clears throat> I was reading a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've referred to before, a preacher in England and Wales. <clears throat> he tells a story that was relayed to, uh, to him by another friend of his, a, a, a preacher friend of his, where there was a man <clears throat> who was convinced, absolutely convinced, that he was to have his teeth extracted, all of his teeth, so that a new set of teeth might grow and, and, and show that, you know, the Holy Spirit had done this and that this would be a great and glorious testimony to the work and power of the Holy Spirit. He said he had been given assurance of this. He knew it was the Holy Spirit or so he thought. And so he had all his teeth extracted. Well, nothing ever grew back. And so <laughs> he obviously had been listening to an evil spirit because he was actually absolutely convinced that he had heard something about this. But again, he didn't prove and test. Why, how, how would something like this, just having him grow back teeth, you know, what, what, what's the purpose of that? What's, what's, you know, <laughs> again, you throw away your reason and understanding for something like this. Another story from around the same time is that a, a preacher was convinced that if he went out on the ocean that uh, God will allow him to walk on water just like the Apostle Peter did. And so he was convinced that he heard from God. So, you know, how many times have you heard that? I've heard from God. <laughs> he went out walking on the ocean and he did not walk on the water. And so uh, his ministry went downhill pretty quick because he had staked a lot on it. So things like that, again, the spectacular with no real spiritual benefit. Beware when you hear things like that because you know what? They still go on today. As it was, you remember, this is the kind of thing the devil suggested to Jesus in the three famous temptations, that he would, should set himself up on the pinnacle of the temple, throw himself down, and so on. Now, any of those things were just spectacles, right? <clears throat> and you'll find in the history of these things that the devil often overreaches himself that way, trying to persuade good Christian people to do something that has no value, that is simply spectacular. And you know what? That's always indicative of <clears throat> of leading anything leading to fanaticism. I think the main tendency of evil powers is to press us too far, to urge us in the direction of um, something that can't be proven, a bad attitude, the wrong attitude, and the whole thing becomes ridiculous and indeed sometimes tragic and certainly shipwrecks a lot of people's faith. When you think about it, isn't that what the enemy is all about? The devil is ultimately concerned with that the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Lord, shall be brought into ridicule and into contempt. 
So that's what I'm going to wrap up this one here. I'm going to just, last one was a little bit long. I don't want to get into a brand new subject with regards to the Holy Spirit until the next one, uh, part five. But uh, at least we've been able to consider how we're to carry out <coughs> the injunction of the scriptures to test the spirits, to prove all things, and to hold fast that which is good and which is true. So I pray that God will keep us all humble, guard us against quenching the spirit, because I think it's just a terrible thing to quench the spirit. To stand before God someday and say, well, I was limited in what I could do because I really didn't think you could do anything through me in this day and age because I didn't believe the Holy Spirit. I believe he's in me, but I didn't believe he could do too much like he did back then. Certainly, Jesus was the only thing, one that could do some of the miracles he did. Everyone he touched was healed, I believe. The apostles, a lot of them, but a lot of them not. As we saw earlier in previous things, there's some things the apostles could miraculously do with healings and other things, and there's other things they couldn't, because why? The Holy Spirit is sovereign, and it's same with us. And it has waxed and waned throughout church history based on faith and based on what we believe could happen and based on you know, doing everything decently in order. But may the Lord guard us from abandoning the gifts totally, which God has given some, out of reason and understanding and from abandoning even the scriptures and exposing ourselves to error and as bad as quenching the spirit is it's also bad to allow ourselves to just let ourselves go and lead to the dangers of fanaticism which we've certainly had in our day and age more on this to come in part five god bless you thanks for listening